Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here as always with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, um, after a lot of the episodes that we've done on the Church Fathers, uh, I'm kind of reminded of my very dim awareness of what the early, you know, notable Christians of the Church, my, my dim awareness of who they were before getting into the Anglican tradition. I generally just remember lots of sort of uh, vaguely defined pictures of, you know, old men kind of living out in the desert. Uh, and I think there was a time when I thought that's just kind of who they all were, like, you know, just the sort of primitive people who didn't really have a whole lot. But being able to learn more about the tradition, I realized that this is actually a, a distinct movement within uh, in the early fathers than uh, a, a period in a group of people we called the, the Desert Fathers. Um, and since we did our episode on the fourth century, I thought it would be good to get into this movement, where it comes from, why did we have old, uh, wise Christian men uh, living in the desert? Uh, why did they do that? And what is what do we take with what do we take with us today from their example? Um, so maybe we could begin with just that way of life of of renouncing everything and 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 completely living outside of society. Why people did that? But is there a name for that? What kind of life is that? Yes, we call that asceticism, and it's interesting. It comes from, that's A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. Asceticism, like an ascetic, it means rigorous self-discipline. It comes from the Greek word for athletic training. So when you're uh, training to be a good athlete, what did you have to You had to train. You don't have to go out there and suddenly start running. You train to be a good runner. You train to be a jumper. You train so, to do these things. So it means athletic training, that kind of self-discipline to train for an event, is called uh, comes the Greek term gives us ascetic, someone who's in athletic training. No, oh, so it's ascetic, athletic. Okay, mm -hmm. so they're training for something. That, it's that's training. The point of it's this. a special type of of training, and it's kind. It's we think of it as being very disciplined. You know, like people on a football team or something for the great game. You know, so they're really keeping in shape. They're doing their Saturday drills. You know, they're doing all these things to to be ready. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be characterized uh, by self-denial. For example, typically uh, things like uh, uh, self-discipline, uh, celibacy, uh, poverty, you know, basically living simply. Think of the Spartans in Greece, right? They live very, very simply, right? You know, part of sort of the military training, think of boot camp and things. And it's a widespread phenomenon. Uh, for example, in the ancient world, a lot of philosophers were ascetics. You know, sort of focus them. They would focus on self-discipline as far as training themselves. It's sort of Christians, we do that in a way when we have fasting. You know, it's a basically way of, of um, you know, getting lean and mean as far as, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, a, in a spiritual sense. And it's a, a number of religious traditions. It's very, very common, a number of philosophical and religious traditions. Okay. So how is, was asceticism practiced in Judaism before Christianity? Well, Jews had a, it's a very mixed thing because first of all, Judaism normally is very opposed to asceticism, except in the case of one group called the Nazarites that we read about in the Old Testament. And that was pretty limited. You know, for example, you, you never had any fruit of the vine and didn't cut your hair. Think of Samson. 
But typically, what the trouble with asceticism from a Jewish point of view is two things. First of all, asceticism normally involves celibacy. You know, something about you know uh, limiting our um, you know our sexual life. You know, in the sense of like not getting married. And the very first, there are six hundred and thirteen commandments in the Torah, as the rabbis count them. Six hundred and thirteen commandments, and the very first commandment is be fruitful and multiply. Ah. The, and so their view is there's actually an affirmative duty. This is still true to this day in Orthodox Jew. You have a duty to bear children. At a minimum, one boy and one girl <laughs> is, is the traditional rabbinic answer. Is at least, at least one boy. I remember once being a kid and seeing a, a picture in the paper of this guy who was so relieved, and the woman was relieved actually, is it was a rabbi whose wife had had something like 10 boys, and finally they had the girls. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, finally it's over. <laughs> so we have that. So Judaism felt we had a special duty. It was actually one of the commandments. It was a mitzvah. It was one of the commandments to be fruitful and multiply. And also wealth is generally viewed as a sign of God's favor in the Old Testament. You know, yeah, there yeah. doesn't seem to be much hesitation about wealth. You know, there are a few minor things as saying, well, I don't want to forget you, you know, in my, you know, curse you in my poverty, forget you in, you know, in my well-being. But normally, read the book of Proverbs, wealth is normally considered a pretty much universal good. Matter of fact, the rabbis tell us in the Talmud that poverty is worse than all the plagues of Egypt. That's one of the most famous <laughs> quotes from the Talmud. Poverty is worse than all the plagues of Egypt. Uh-huh, uh-huh. However, we do know there was one group of Jews who were exactly the opposite. Almost, um, they were called the Essenes. You know, we heard a lot about them because we have Josephus, a Jewish writer, Philo, a Jewish writer, and Pliny the Younger, a Roman writer, all talk about them. And yeah. these were people who didn't marry, and they lived a very, almost like a monastic lifestyle, we think today of monks. And matter of fact, these are the people we think might be involved with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. because when we read the scrolls, besides scrolls from the Bible, we have scrolls for that group. And the way they talk about their life sounds a lot like that group. We can't prove yeah, it, but it yeah. seems a lot like them. So there were some Jews, because Judaism had a variety of sects you know, involved, like different types of Protestant. There are different forms of Judaism. And so it appears, but on the whole, mainstream Judaism had no appeal towards either celibacy or poverty. I see, I see. Yeah, this is why would you voluntarily you know put yourself in the position that seems to be you know uh, uh, the result of, of disfavor or misfortune yeah it's so, like this if if poverty's worse than all the plagues of egypt then head for goshen yeah <laughs> yeah okay well but the the christian attitude toward asceticism is different right it it the, there's a there's a shift there a big shift the first thing is let's just look uh um, in the um, in the New Testament, for example, for the first time, Christianity affirmed that celibacy could be a positive good. Jesus tells us that. First of all, the example of Jesus and Paul. Neither Jesus nor Paul were married. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Neither one of them were sure. married. Also, Jesus says in Matthew 19, he said, now, you know, there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. And oh, Paul so like receive it as a gift almost. Yes, receive it as a yeah. gift if you're called to this. And he also uh, Paul says, now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Yeah, yeah. So clearly this is not considered a negation of a commandment. It's looked at, the, and Paul says, because it helps you to serve the Lord better. And for some, some people, it will help their vocation. He said, mm-hmm. you, you can focus. So Christianity did not look upon this as an affirmative, as a, an affirmative command binding in everyone but actually thought there were some people who could indeed be called to celibacy. 
it was a possible call. Well, that makes sense if you're putting it up against the fact that it was, you know, in mainstream Judaism at the time treated as 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 not a positive thing. No, so it was not a positive thing. I can I can see so like yeah, that Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians the way that they talk about it um that that makes sense for recommending something that wasn't normally recommended. Um, right. So yeah, it would that, be a surprise to any Jew. Out. A surprise to any Jew to say that. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Imagine a Jewish mother having her son saying, well, I don't think I'll have, a, I have grandchildren for you. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to spend much time with your Jewish friends to realize that's not a possibility with a Jewish mother. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, we don't, you know, there were some people who tried to just forbid marriage altogether, right? That was critical. One thing essential to us was the idea that marriage was good. You see, one of the things we were suspicious of, there are some people who argued, we talked about the Gnostics, that anything material and sex was as material as it could get was inherently wrong, and we absolutely rejected that. So while acknowledging that celibacy could be a positive good, we argued it was actually demonic to argue that, that our sexuality was ever bad. So actually, Timothy calls it a doctrine of devils, using the King James. He says in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Yeah. <laughs> so, so have no doubt about this. Christian said there's anything short of saying marriage is good, made by God, is heretical. Yeah, yeah. But they're saying... Yeah. Despite that fact, we also acknowledge that celibacy could be called. It could be an authentic good of itself. But marriage, there's no question that marriage is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the so basically that this that celibacy can be can be a calling uh, in yes. the same way that 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 marriage is exactly. Yeah. I I can see how that's a very that's that that's an extremely different. You know that seems that it, it's kind of a mediating course, I guess, but it's one that is very um, that that's very distinctive to to Christians, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. It was certainly separates Christianity from Judaism in practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, another thing was Christian attitude towards poverty. You know, uh, again, seen as a po the blessed are the poor in spirit, and in, in, in Luke's gospel, the Sermon on the Plain says, yeah. "Blessed are the poor." Jesus said, if you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Or James saying, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. you know, so Christianity, you, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. So Christianity was less sanguine about the obvious good of wealth. You know, yeah. looking, they yeah. thought, you know, so again, on both points, whether it be the positivity of celibacy and the positivity of radical dependence on God. Both sure, of those sure. are considered good things in Christianity. Sure. So this is, this is a, just like there's a, there's a shift in an attitude towards celibacy. There's also a shift in an attitude toward poverty. Like, Hey, this could real this, this is actually uh, a, a way of life that has a lot of positives with your regard, with your, in regards to your relationship to God. So that's right. It could show our willingness to depend on God for our daily bread. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is it the same kind of thing? Like, you know, poverty, like ab abject poverty isn't, you know, mandated for everyone, but it, it's absolutely not. 
Yeah. But it's saying that we say the idea, first of all, the critical thing is always in the context. Like it says, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Is the idea is going to be about sharing. It's like Jews support almsgiving strongly. But here is talking about just sell what you have to give to, not just giving alms out of a, of a surfeit of alms as being, you know, fundamental, fundamental radical sharing was certainly yeah. considered positive in Christianity. Whereas uh, Jews might hesitate, well, we want to be generous. Almsgiving is a requirement for Jews. But then again, we have to worry about our errors and those kind of things too and building up. And, uh, you know, Christianity, you don't find anything like that ever in the New Testament. You find anything about sort of building up a heritage and things and sense of money. We talk about investing in heaven. Right, 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 yeah. So it's very positive. Basically, we have a positive place for people who aren't actually building up a physical heritage. We see yeah. that in positive terms. Also, Christians acknowledge the value of self-discipline. I love Paul. Now, one of the reasons he does it in Corinthians, everybody knows about the uh, Olympics, of course, the Olympic yeah. Games. We had. But they also, had the, they also had a game in the Corinthian Games. And the lucky winner of the Corinthians Games got a life si lifetime supply of olive oil. So mm. that's something to aspire to. But in any event, look at what Paul says, because that's like Paul in Corinthians, loves athletic metaphors, probably why it was a sports town, is he says, do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete, athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it for yeah. a, receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box like someone beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Mm -hmm. So those three things together are sort of the foundation of a positive Christian view is, you know, that basically celibacy could be a positive call. And secondly, that poverty certainly could be, uh, you know, basically very, very limited uh, earthly possessions and self-discipline could help us mm -hmm. run the race better are all positive. So this sets sort of a intellectual underpinning for being open to the possibility of asceticism. Yeah, but it's all about your objective, right? Oh, what yeah. Are you training for training for heaven for God? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk. So that's asceticism. So there's a shift in Christian attitude there. Well, let's talk about the actual the the actual ascetic movement that results in the the desert fathers. So where does that begin? Well, it goes right to the very beginning of Christianity. We even see evidence in the New Testament. We talk about enrolling widows, and it was clear. Remember Anna in the uh, New Testament that we have in the temple? The, what was she doing, that, that widow? That was in Judaism. I mean, she was, as a widow, she was spending her time, you know, basically praying in the temple, praying day and night, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. or, or we have the women who are doing good works. We have Paul when we had um, uh, the woman who dies, uh, and, you know, and that she, um, they said, look, and she's, uh, you know, brought back from Paul. Yeah. And... So what we have is, from the very beginning, there was a radical, the idea of a radical response to the gospel, combined with prayer and good works. The idea that people were saying, I really want to follow the gospel, almost literally. There have always been some people from the very first days who say, I want to really take this at its word. And in the most yeah. literal sense, give everything you have to the poor. And sometimes it's institutional. The church actually enrolled consecrated virgins and things in early times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also there's a lot of private initiative. A lot of individual Christians, what they would do is, first of all, would start out in communities, is some of them would just live like on their own within the community, live a very, very strict, you know, very strict lifetime, like being in athletic discipline, you know, with prayer and fasting and those things. Then what happened, they sort of migrate. What they sort of seem to migrate to the outskirts of the community. 
And that's actually makes a lot of sense because in Egypt, that's sort of where traditional holy men lived. You know, you'd be, you would, you're next to the community, but you're sort of in the outskirts because you're about to leave town. Yeah. And later, since in the Nile Valley in Egypt, everybody's close to the desert, people actually moved into the desert. So okay. that's the early response. So from the earliest times, even in the New Testament, we see some people who clearly seem to be living a separate lifestyle, you know, in, you know, enrolled widows and things. Uh, then we have a lot of private initiative. We can prove indirectly that this is going on. But we mm. find out this really develops, especially in three areas. Just let me tell you something very frankly. The Romans weren't into this kind of thing. It was not the Roman. Short of Vestal Virgins, the Romans were not into this. They were much. They're like, nah. That's not the Roman way. So we see it really thriving in the East. We see it in Egypt, Palestine, and Syria. Is those three areas we find a lot of this developing early on. I see. But it's it's just a it's a, it's just coming up like weeds in the sense of I don't mean in a negative sense, but it's just are coming up yeah. everywhere. It's not planet, just coming up everywhere in here and sure. there and other. But these seem to be the area where we find it. We see a lot of that. You don't see it in the West. I very very yeah. little West. It's an Eastern thing. Okay. Okay. I see. So Roman Roman culture, Latin culture is just kind of less into this stuff, but the East really picks up on it. They're much more practical. I mean, the Latin way is sort of, well, how does this help somebody? The type of, it's sort of the Latin pro- Remember, the, yeah. the, the, the Greeks were scientists, the Romans were engineers. <laughs> right, 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 sure. The Greeks yeah. talked about geometry, Romans built bridges. I mean, so that's sort of the... So, so Romans are just not... the people with the kind of temperament who want to go out and have a spirit journey in the in the it's in the desert, not the know? roman way no it's uh yeah <laughs> so where so this this happens in egypt this happens in palestine and in syria um but how, you know let me ask you though like how do people how do people survive actually doing this like well, they're, you... they're renouncing everything but i mean that's some kind of plan right well there are two different ways people go about it and the two basic schools. I mean, the first one are what we call anchorites. And anchorite comes from a Greek term, meaning to, like, it comes exactly the Greek equivalent of retire. Retire comes from French, you know, to pull back and from Latin originally. Retire means to pull back, like we say, retirement. You're pulling back from your job, you know, working just sort of going off. That's retirement, literally pulling back. That's what, that's what the word means in Greek. So an anchorite was originally somebody who withdraw to live somehow apart. It could be within the community, but you sort of lived apart. You sort of lived differently than everybody else. You know, it's like having your own room when you're a kid. Everybody else is in the game. You're in your room reading or something. You know, they sort of lived on their own. And the key figure with that is going to be, who's going to really run with this, is going to be someone called Anthony the Great we'll talk about. Yeah, we've heard about him. Oh, yeah. We'll talk more about Anthony. Uh, And then we'll talk about the Cenobites. Cenobites... Uh, comes from Kenobia, and if you take it any Greek, you'd recognize, wait a second, I know that koinonia means, you know, things in common, shared, and I know bios is a Greek word for, for life. So you've got it, folks. Mm-hmm. Cenobites are people who live together. So they do these things, you know, like the special type of really being, in, but they, it's sort of like living in a dorm as opposed to living in a private room. Think of it that sure. way. Is the anchorites like people live in their own private rooms at college. You know, they have their own dorm room. They yeah, don't share yeah. with anybody. The others are like people sitting in a big room where you have 20 people, 20 beds in the old days, like an army barracks, you know, type of thing. Think of it that way as sort of an analogy is they live in community. Okay, that, that was actually a distinction between the, the dormitories on our campus. One of them had bathrooms that were connected to the rooms. The other one had common bathrooms yes. that everyone used. So, okay, so that's the difference between the anchorites and the cinnabites. Yeah, the, the anchorites <laughs> really lived on their own, I mean, individually. There was much of a focus on individuals. So the others lived apart from the regular society. They lived yeah. separately and differently. But in doing so, they live separately together. 
Yeah. So they did their thing alone. They did their separate way of life, but they did it as a group as opposed to as an individual. I see. And those, so and, people, so people stuck together in different ways in order to, you know, make this kind of life sustainable. Yeah. And the key figure there was Pacomius. Yeah. Of course, okay, they, so part of it is they really tried to live very, very simply. I mean, they tried to live at a min, with minimum food and things as a matter of discipline and things. So it was easier. Uh, one place we'll see, one place where this is popular is places like Egypt and things um, have more than their share of food okay. uh, compared <laughs> to other places. So it's a lot m- less of a practical problem in Egypt than a lot of other places would be. Sure, sure. Now, it's interesting, the so, word monk... Yeah, I was about to ask you for that. You know, where does where does I I we hear about these people today and they're called monks, but where does that where does that word come from? Well, we all know the word manos, right? It means one, you know, singular in Greek. Monakos is means literally a solitary, somebody who lives as a single person. Okay. So actually it's the same thing as an anchorite in a way. It means someone who lived alone, except it came to be used as a term that could describe either. Okay. So if you just so lived alone, you're it. called an anchorite. If you, if you live this special way, but you lived as a community, like a community of athletes, as opposed to a single athlete doing training, you know, that was uh, Kenobia, that was, you know, uh, Cenobites. And if you want to describe all these people who live this separate type of life, this special life, you call them monks, anyone. But, okay. So the word is sort of, like, if you know Greek, is sort of confusing because it means to be a solitary. And believe me, some of Pacomius's um, monasteries had hundreds of monks. So it was a crowd scene. It was hardly a being alone. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but they were a monk in the sense that they were alone from the world. So the, the word, it means solitary, but it came to mean anybody who was living a special life, whether they lived in community or lived alone. Sure, okay. Well, let's talk about the Anchorites first, and then we can move on to the, the Cenobites. And maybe maybe we should start with Anthony the Great, first one. Well, he was an Egyptian, and he's called the first desert monk, but actually that's not true in okay. a big way. Here's what I mean. You know how like we talk of the West or something and we talk about people like Davy Crockett or something going to Texas and the like. You're a good Texan. And right. uh, from Tennessee and the like. But actually a lot of people who did this, but you know, we can't know all of them. So we often take one person as being the quintessential example. For some reason that curse gets known and it's not so much what they did individually, taking nothing away from that. But the fact is they're, they're symbolic of a lot of other people doing exactly, they're like a quintessential pioneer. And so yeah, what happens with yeah. it, I can prove to you from that that, that uh, Anthony, there are other people who had done this before he did. But for various reasons, he's going to become the first person who really comes associated with this. He's going to become their exemplar, their, like the model pioneer. So he becomes yeah. the model everybody uses. Um, so he's really an exemplar rather than initiator. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, why does he become so important? Why him of all people? Like why Davy Crockett? You know, compared to other people who moved to Texas. Yeah, I was, well, he is a Tennessean. He is a Tennessean. Yeah, so what's, what's the deal with Anthony then? Well, with Anthony, what really happened was, is he had the luck of uh, running and helping out Bishop Athanasius, who we know about from another program in Egypt. He heard Athanasius in trouble. He actually went to see Athanasius to help out. Here, some people actually were being persecuted. He went to visit them. He met Athanasius. Athanasius was so impressed, he wrote a story of his life called Life of Anthony. This became the equivalent of a bestseller in the ancient world. Few books in Christian history have been more read than the life of Anthony. Anthony. Yeah, we yeah we talked about that on our Amazing. Uh, Athanasius episode. And it really changed lives. I mean, Augustine and Jerome, it was part of their conversion. It was part of their life. You know, was this book changed their life. And matter of fact, this became so popular that it set the Egyptian example. You know, Anthony was an Egyptian, so we just find how they do it in Egypt. But that became sort of normative. It became sort of the Harvard of... <laughs> <laughs> of of monasticism 
you know, there might yeah. be other universities, but there's only one Harvard type of thing. It's, you know, there's, uh, but that's why he's considered the first desert monk. There were other people who did it before he did, but he really became the quintessence. And that book basically became like the manual for what it should look like. Mm-hmm. This is like mm-hmm. what a real pioneer looks like. I see. I see. I'm not going to break into the, into the chorus of Davy Davy Crockett to show my age. I was hoping you would. <laughs> there used to be a Disney program in the 50s on that. Davy. Davy, Davy Crockett. Crockett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never heard it. Okay. Okay. So the Anthony, so the, the life of Anthony, especially kind of, um, it, it, it sort of, it, it becomes this inspirational thing. Yeah. Uh, for another generation of, and he's a very of, impressive man. I take nothing away from him, but he—it's not like he invented this way. He never thought about it. Matter of fact, we had talked in an earlier episode. He was converted at a sermon. He's walking into church late, so there's a lot of people. There's a lot of hope for sanctity there. He was like, he was coming in at the time of the sermon of the uh, gospel, rather, and he heard uh-huh. the part where Je- where Jesus is saying, "Sell what you have, give to the poor, and come follow me." And he said, it was like, "I've heard Jesus saying that to me. I knew these words were personally directed at me." So he tells us, well, what do you do? So he, go and, he went and found a solitary to tell him how to do this. So we know he's not the first because the first thing he did is look at somebody who could help him out. He got a mentor. Yeah, yeah. So you'd say, how could that mentor be there? Because clearly he wasn't the first. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. All right. So that makes sense. <laughs> so he said, how do I do this? You know, so like, what do I do? How sure. do I, I want to do this? How do I do this? Because it's not an official thing. And then he gets so successful in town. I love this that he moves to the cemetery outside the village. We call him a necropolis, literally a city of the dead in Greek. And uh, that's where in this book, some, some of the fun stuff, I mean, since we have the story of his struggling with demons, and that's where we have the demon of lust is portrayed as a pig. And if you want to recognize oh, pictures yeah. of Anthony, he normally has a pig near him. So if you see, yeah, if you see yeah. a guy with a very long beard uh, and a pig, it's probably Anthony. Also, a lot of flying demons around him is a good sign. We're talking about Anthony in pictures. Yeah, you know, I actually, I there's an art museum in Fort Worth called the Kimball, and uh, there is a, a famous, uh, a Michelangelo, I think, about uh, St. Anthony. The Temptation of Anthony. The, the Temptation of Anthony, yeah, and he's flying, he's in the air, and there's all these little demons kind of picking at him all over the place, but yeah. You would be hard-pressed, seriously, to find a major museum in Europe that doesn't have the Temptation of St. Anthony. It's one of the most mm. common literary, um, you know, uh, tropes. Like motifs, in, yeah. yeah, in Western art, um, you know, for Christian Christian art, and then he moves. He get the trouble with being a, with. Here's the trouble with being a, a recluse. You know, being a monk on your own is the more you get hold, people want to get your advice. They want help. They want to pray with you. They want to get your advice, and so it sort of wrecks the whole thing. And so people find him in this necropolis. So he moves out to an abandoned fort and spends twenty years there, out in the desert. But people find him there too. Yeah. Around. yeah. Uh, he actually helps out with the church because being away from the church didn't mean they weren't interested in church life. They saw themselves as very much a part of the church. When he found out Christians were being persecuted, as I mentioned in Alexandria, he was out there to help them. Yeah. When he comes back, he says, "This everybody knows where I live now, so much for the abandoned fort motif. So he actually goes the other direction. He goes east of the Nile all the way to the Red Sea and finds a mountain there that he, he uh, sets a base at. By the way, there's still a mon- monastery there to this day. Actually, Ath- yeah. Ath- Ath- Athanasius goes back there to get help from them. Oh, okay. Oh, so, all right. But he becomes so popular that here's what happens. Uh, people come around him, and people begin wanting to imitate this. So around the Delta, you know, Alexandria, you know, is, is near the Delta, on the west side of the Delta there. They start putting areas that are really good, 
uh, that are you know, like within an hour or two of the river. You can get to, but they're far enough away, it'll be a hassle. And the first one we have is nitria. Mm-hmm. It's not, the name is, they actually have nitrates there. It's something you mined at the time. So they found this valley, said, this is perfect. There are all these places in the caves. You could you know, find a little place for yourself. And often what they do, even though they lived alone, they'd often come together like once a week to talk about spiritual things or to come together for Eucharist or something. But otherwise, they uh-huh. lived alone and did their own thing. And then you'll love this. That became too much of a crowd scene for some of these hard hard timers, <laughs> the Marines of this group, you know. So they decide to move a little bit away to a group. They have cells, which in Greek are called kalia cells. Okay. Like what you find in a beehive. And to get more solitude. But I tell you, the, okay. the real hardcore ones eventually find it. They find a place called Skidus, or Cetus, however you want to pronounce it. I've heard it both ways. It's actually located further to the west, but it's a full hard day's walk from the river. It's really tough to get to. You've got to yeah, want to yeah. get there in the desert. Uh, it's the most isolated settlements. Those three are the three great settlements for this in northern Egypt. It's going to okay. be Kalia, Nitria, Kalia, and Cetus. Okay, so it's like Nitria, after a while, uh, Nitria is just so over. So oh, duh. Gotta move out so to been the there, done that. <laughs> all the real prayers are moving out to the cells <laughs> i yeah like i i was living alone and and i was living the ascetic life before it was cool so those guys move off to the cells and then later skatis is the most isolated and that really uh people find them because they're they're really hardcore actually some of our best stuff is from status but it's really hard to get to i mean you really yeah. have got to want to get there to get there do people go out and visit them oh yes to this day they're tour sites Wow. But people in those times certainly did because there was sort of spiritual tourism. People wanted to go and see these people and get and pray, like have retreats and like pilgrimages. They would have they wanted sure. to get their their spiritual advice. Sometimes very important people would come to see them to get a monk to you know I'm praying about this or you know can you pray with me about this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The um, I did get to go to Alexandria, uh, but and I did get to that's go not out. named after you, is it? No, I. It's believe it or not, it's the other way around. But. No, I, Okay. Uh, but, Who knew? but uh i did get to go out in the desert um i i was really, I, I went out into the desert around cairo it wasn't around Alexandria. well that's the other end of the delta yeah. yeah right but that egyptian desert man that's a that is a that is a lonely place i'll tell you i'll, I'll tell you there it's beautiful but it's 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 a you really can be alone out there if you want to yeah <laughs> so yeah, it certainly yeah. certainly can be yeah um it's it's i'd say maybe even a little bit more so than you know Arizona or, or New Mexico or something. Okay, so that's the Anchorites, but let's let's talk about the Cenobites. So um, these are the people that live in in more community. And you said a guy named Pacomius, Pacomius. started this. That's right. He's way up in on the Upper Nile. That's in the south of Egypt. He's way way up river, mm-hmm. and his basic idea was living in community. And I love yeah. this. His theory was this. I love this. He said, you know, we need others to spiritually develop in the sense that, although one thing that's not so flattering is, frankly, we're so hard to live with each other. That's how you know you're making progress. You know, <laughs> but no, that's part yeah. of, you know, living with love means that, you know, you might think you're more patient than you are until you have a reason to be patient. Until you, yeah, really until you get tested. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like the difference when you have children and things, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so what happens is um, he uh, has this idea of, i and so he has this rule he has. This is the first rule that we really have of governing a life, of here's how we live together in community. 
And he had these settlements that were enclosed by this wall, and he had different, in the settlement, you'd have like different dormitories, these big houses. And each one would have mm-hmm. 20 to 40 individuals who lived there, and they were organized by craft, like leather workers would be in one place. You know, or yeah, metal workers yeah. would be another. And then you would have common places for church, you know, where you ate, the refectory, the infirmary, you know, kitchen and things. Mm-hmm. And something to point out here, he said, you know, don't get priests, they're a problem. <laughs> And he said, you need priests. He said, have one come in, you know, to celebrate the Eucharist and things, or go to the local church. But he didn't want them. He thought that would change. What people miss is that monasticism is a lay movement. Right, right. It's very much. You think much. of them kind of like a, a, a type of, of priest or a type of, uh, a type of pastor or something. But religious orders are not that, right? No, they start out the Desert Fathers. Now, sometimes later on in their history in the Middle Ages, you'll have many of them become priests. But from the beginning, it was actually an oddity. Uh, normally, the idea was it was a lay movement. Yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons yeah. they had, because frankly, if you had if you had a priest in your community, that means the bishop would have a direct say in how you live. This is individuals getting together, a bunch of you know Christians getting together and trying to do something together in a Christian life, and they didn't particularly want to be locked into the sort of structure, because if the bishop is your boss if you're if the clergy. I mean, in a sense, you know, they they didn't want that. And he had a strong biblical focus. He had one of the things, he loved this idea of the model of the first church of Jerusalem as being here. Here's, here's how the idea of how it means to live in community, to, to reproduce that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so is this, a, is this a little bit more similar to kind of monks and monks in monasteries as we think of them today? Oh, very much so. Like, like kind of a predecessor to St. Benedict and... And that sort of thing. Yeah, th- this is going to be the winner. Uh, we're going to see later how it how the other is preserved, but it becomes in the West it becomes extremely unusual. You know, the hermits as such. We think the hermits and things become the exception. The rule is people living in community. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. So. Um, so okay. Well, so the the Cenobites are kind of what we know today. The Anchorites. I don't know very many anchorites today, so, so I've met a few. Um, yeah, oh, you, oh, you met a few. Yeah, okay. in the context of the Eastern Church, but I've met a few anchorites. Yeah, because often okay. what they'll do is they get, like I say, they'll get together for a community. As a matter of fact, that's what a skeet is, by the way. A skeet is is anchorites who come together for one or more services, but they live otherwise completely on their own. They do the work on their own. I see. For I example, see. a lot of yeah. people have, have uh, get icons from something called Saint Sir, uh, Isaac of Syria skeet. And that's up in Wisconsin near Bosco Bell. But that has the individual monks live completely alone, but they come together for certain services. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, great. So how so how do these let's, let's keep talking about both of them, but how do they how do they develop and how do they kind of form and change to what they become? Well, what's the the important thing here is they have four basic themes that are really important that they help to maintain in the church. Remember, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Our goal is to be constantly connected to God. So that's one of the major themes of all monks, whether they be Cenobites or whether they be, you know, Anchorites, is how do I keep this idea of living in the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. Mm-hmm. A second is if you're going to live in community, it should be like the church in Jerusalem. The idea that no one killed anything, they had to be their own. The yeah. idea of one, yeah. one spirit, you know, everything held in common. 
Remember Psalm 1 says, you know, meditating on, meditating on his word day and night, meditating on the law day and night. The idea of meditating on the scriptures. Not just reading, yeah. it's really, really ruminating on them, meditating on them. And the fourth is the idea of obedience as the key to achieve humility. Humility is the queen of the virtues. And so the idea of Paul talks about mutual submission, being in a place where I can always have people to serve, where we have one another can be an opportunity to develop humility, to develop service. So those things, praying without ceasing, living like the church of Jerusalem, sharing everything in common, meditating, you're just really living in the word of God, meditating on the word, and then uh, mutual submission, you know, the idea of, of obedience to one another. Okay, so so when does this movement really peak? Well, what happens is, frankly, it's just one of those idiosyncratic things until the 4th and 5th centuries. So what happens then? Well, the 4th century is when the church really, its ship comes into port. Is, you know, basically, this is the time when the, when the empire becomes Christian. And so what happened here is, remember, when the church was being persecuted and things, to be a Christian meant people were really into this. I mean, there was, there was a real cost to pay. But, you know, now suddenly all sorts of people want to be Christians. There's no, rather than having a price to pay, this is a way up. You know, being a Christian becomes a plus. And a lot of people thought the church was getting fat and happy. You know, that basically yeah. that we needed to be lean and mean again, that we needed to be on the edge. Martyrdom used to give us that edge. Mm-hmm. And they say, so in a lot of way, what they were looking at was saying the new martyrdom. They often compare this to a new type of martyrdom. Of, and the idea of what it was was trying to be living out the gospel radically. You know, what if Jesus really meant these things literally? There's a radical example as an example of the gospel. So they look upon themselves as being the cutting edge, you know, making sure, keeping Christianity true to its original roots. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. so successful, it becomes a training bound for future bishops. Matter of fact, this has been today, huh. to, th- to this very day in the Orthodox Church, all bishops in the Orthodox Church originally are monks. That's not true of priests, but, you know, the idea was that this gives you a special type of training, sort of like your basic, you know, you there's something about this experience that particularly puts you in a position you know, to, to be a father to the, the church. And so a lot of, in the West too, we'll see later on, is that uh, typically bishops will come, will have started out as monks, becomes the rule later on, starting as forth. Sure. That'll they'll have spent time there, and then they will back up, go back into the church. So, um, so it's a lay movement, but it becomes kind of a proving ground for, for bishops. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that's interesting, it has this, Initially, it has a strange relationship with the church. In Egypt, it does. This is going to make in Egypt the relationship is it's a lay movement because and they can be a, they can be a, they can be a bishop's best friend. Like the monks really came to Athanasius's help. I mean, they really stood by. On the other hand, they could be parachurch. Some of them started sure. almost becoming rivals to the bishops, saying, "Here's the right way," and you know, you know. So it could go both ways. So at first, it's sort of iffy. You know, sometimes it can be the bishop's best friend. Sometimes it can almost be rival forces. The church is going to work this out, but that's one of the initial challenges we have in the 4th and 5th century. Especially in Egypt, it's going to lead to a big break in Egypt. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I can see how uh, like a group that's separate from the institutional church that could kind of, that kind of gathered so much respect for their religious way of life could end up kind of getting used to calling some calling the shots <laughs> or sort of like we are the church in some ways you know sure sure i think of yeah, the old billy graham yeah. crusades a beautiful example of supporting the church 
when you went to a Billy Graham crusade, what would they do? They would have counselors who would get you cooked up with a local church. <laughs> right, right, right. They yeah, didn't exactly. say just, you know, just become one of us. and We'll just send you things and we can, you know, the idea was we want to connect you with the church on the ground. Sure. But there's some sure. other religious movements where basically as parachurch where they never connect you with the rest of the church. They're sort of a substitute for church. Right. But the right. big thing here is people so, always acknowledge they're part of the church, but some of these became pretty much independent operators, which caused some grief in Egypt. Remember, how does Egypt, how does everybody get to know, besides this book, how does everybody get to know about Egyptian monasticism? Well, the first thing is we have that book. But the second thing is this. The people who are actually Egyptian, meaning of culture, who spoke Coptic, which is the Semitic language of Egypt, they didn't necessarily get along from the people on the coast who spoke Greek and were Greek background, who were much more into philosophy and things. So it turns out, later on, we have a controversy over origin. And a lot of the Greek monks really were strong supporters of origin. And became and later on, it becomes questionable how orthodox they are. And so what happens, they actually get kicked out of Egypt. Those three great centers we talked about, many of them get kicked out of Egypt. And when they do, it's like after the persecution of Stephen, where people, the, the gospel starts going everywhere. These people start going in, they start moving into Palestine, into Syria, you know, in, uh, into Mesopotamia. And they bring the model, so the model of Egyptian monasticism becomes normative. Uh-huh. Because now uh-huh. you don't just have this book, you have all sorts of people who lived it. Yeah. They're right there yeah. with you. And they really are the shock troops. I mean, they really are the best of the best. And everyone sees that. So they, that's where we get this overwhelming Egyptian feel that comes from the Egyptians. So it actually is a blessing that they got forced out. They weren't really heretical. You know, they got, they got, but they got forced. <laughs> they were sort of suspicious. They got forced out. And that really is going to give a special flavor to uh, monasticism. It's going to be true of everywhere. Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay. So if we're, but if we're talking about, the the kind of ur texts of this movement we want definitely the life of anthony by athanasius you got to read this it's a really good read you know some books i gotta admit i love the fathers but you gotta admit if you're not into the fathers you haven't studied them and things some are a lot some of them are can be a snooze fest if you don't know what's going on or or worse they can be hard to plot and others are really you can't put them down they're really good this is you can see why this is a bestseller to this day Uh you pick up that book and it's good so you're gonna you're yeah, gonna love it. Yeah. Another very popular thing is called the uh, the sayings of the desert fathers. The apophegmata is the Greek thing for the sayings of the desert fathers, and these are neat. It's like a book of proverbs with you know these various life advice they give. So this is great. You know, on, on, on monastic life and other yeah. things, you'll love these, and they're so neat because you just read one, you can read a few, and they're arranged either in alphabetical order or by topic. Typically, in alphabetical order of the month. So the first one is of you never guessed it, Anthony. Is the first yeah, yeah. is the first one up, first batter up is Anthony, and we get all his sayings and things. So would this have been in you know? Did they have like an ancient gift shop or something like that? that exit through the exit there. through the gift shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you for visiting. <laughs> and then we have the history of the desert, uh, the monks in Egypt. Um, that's less popular. You really want to read the de- sayings of the desert fathers if you're doing a serious study of the history of the monks. And the Palladius wrote a book called the Lausiac History which is good. But again, the books regular, if you are just getting into this and say something, I want something that's spiritual is going to really do something for me. The first two are the ones you want. You want Life of Anthony and the Saying of the Desert Fathers are great. You're going to love them. Yeah. yeah. The others are good, but they're more for hardcore. If you're really getting into this, the the history of the monks in Egypt and the Laosiac history are really good places to continue. But you don't want to start there. You want to start with the, start with Godfather 1 and 2 before you get to 3. <laughs>
<laughs> got it. Got it. Okay, great. Well, well, yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I wanted to ask one other thing before we go, and mm-hmm. is that you know I'd hazard to say that most of our listeners are not living the ascetic life, but how do we? What do we take from the ascetics? Reading about the ascetics, um, and you know, even even uh, you know, knowing and supporting ascetic movements in Christianity today. Well, they made a huge contribution. We'll see that more when we talk about Benedict, for example, and what 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 happens in the West. But remember, those four goals they have are beautiful. They have tremendous spiritual vices. It involves every Christian. Every Christian wants to, to pray without ceasing. That's a command to all Christians, we're told, you know, from the Apostle Paul. We all want to meditate. How do we make the, the gospel, the, the word of God, part of our lives? How do we integrate that into our lives? So, how do we act out the scriptures? And so they're dealing with those. How do we live in community, Self, you know, self-sacrificing community? How can we live that out radically? Uh, you know, how can we, you know, so to me, not only to provide examples, but that idea that we could also live it in different ways in different contexts. Later on, we're actually mm-hmm. have something called third orders, where you have people who couldn't actually, weren't going to live separately, but they wanted to take as much of this as in the context of other things. I have a family, but I still would like to live out some of these ideals. How could I do it meaningfully in the context of being a family person? Yeah, I can't be yeah. spending, you know, you're a father right now, a young father, a father of young children, rather. And a young father, you're both. Okay. And so in a case like that, uh, you you say you can't be like, I'm an old guy or something. I could be living, you know, just praying all day, et cetera, you know, doing these things. You say, well, that's nice if you don't have have a job <laughs> and if you don't have kids and yeah, things. Yeah. But we could still take all these ideals and we could apply them differently in different circumstances. In some ways what they do, it's sort of like at college, you know, you have these, these people who do a wonderful job keeping alive all these different th- these bits of knowledge. Like, you know, in a, in a yeah. divinity, you've got people who are professional theologians. They can all be professional theologians, but they give us great resources. So we are trying to look up something with theology and things. You know, we have really good places to go. Sure, sure. They can give us really good advice because they've devoted their life to studying this. And often it can be a really wonderful place, a, a, a period of formation. You know, a lot of these people, this is a period, they went on to be bishops and things. They didn't stay there the rest of their lives, but they, it was a... It was a good experience. Some of the we see in many of the church fathers, they they'll go back periodically. They'll, be, they'll renew themselves by like going back to the spring, get away from all yeah. the hassle, and remember what it's all about. You know, get back to first things. Mm. Sort of like you know a couple going off, you know, and um, you know having an extended uh, second honeymoon or something. You know, after a few kids or something. Let's go, let's go back. Let's um, let's renew a little bit. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. That's all the time we have uh, for this episode. And thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again in uh, one week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.